I mean, all the things that have been on Republicans' wish lists for many years have just about been done. Oh, no, not all of them, Senator. you still got some states you can ruin. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on some fine internet affiliates, including the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today. Lots to get to. Uh, Some uh, news right off the bat here regarding missing Saudi Arabian Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. From the uh, president of the United States today, who tweets that he just spoke with Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who totally denied any knowledge of what took place in their Turkish consulate, where, according to Turkish officials, Khashoggi was killed by a Saudi hit squad. But the president of the United States says he he spoke with him. He totally denies it. He was apparently with um, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, was with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at the time during the call, says Trump, and told me that uh, he has already started and will rapidly expand a full and complete investigation into this matter. Answers will be shortcoming, uh, forthcoming shortly. <laughs> well, uh, one yeah. way or the other, yeah. Anyway, issue solved there. Uh, yeah, sure. What more can be done? Yeah, they said they didn't do it, so yeah, there you go. What are you going to do? Uh, oh, well. You know, just like Vladimir Putin told Trump he didn't do it, just like Brett Kavanaugh told Trump he didn't do it. They both strongly denied it. So anyway. What can you do? That's right. The U.S. is powerless to find out anything else. There is nothing we can do. They denied it, Desi Doyen. Hi, Des. Hey. Uh, So anyway, uh, good news there because we can keep selling billions of dollars in arms to the Saudis and the Trump and Kushner families can continue their years long business arrangements with the Saudis. So all is well. Uh, Coming up shortly, our go to U.S. Supreme Court correspondent Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com turns his attention to some insane and I mean 
insane state Supreme Court actions, including both some good news from a state Supreme Court regarding that state's Supreme Court and a potential constitutional crisis at another state Supreme Court regarding that state's Supreme Court. If all of that sounds uh, nuts, it's because it is. And in case that's not nuts enough, we'll also try to toss in some U.S. Supreme Court action that also seems incredibly nuts to me regarding this November's election and a recent decision by the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, that is likely to affect whether Democrats or Republicans control the U.S. Senate after the November 6th midterms. Uh, also, Desi Doyen, uh, you will be joining us for the Green News Report a little yes. bit later. Yes. News on the destruction wrought by Hurricane Michael in Florida and Georgia and elsewhere. And as we go to air today, the death toll has just been doubled in the state of Florida. So we are now at either 28 or 26, depending on uh, who, who you uh, follow here on this. Uh, in four different states, all in the wake of Michael. There may be more added to that death toll as numbers are still unaccounted for. Uh, a lot of folks are still missing, trying to work through rubble in large swaths of Florida. So that's ahead. But hey, very quickly, before we get to Mark and insanity at our nation's court, courts, I should say, speaking of elections, uh, hey, here's your voter registration deadlines coming up right now this week, Wednesday, October 17 in Massachusetts, in South Carolina and in Wisconsin. Those will be your last chances to participate, to register if you want to participate or try to participate in the November 6 midterms. I hope you will. Friday, um, the uh, registration deadline is up in Nebraska on Sunday in Illinois and next Monday in Alabama, California. Oh, hello. South Dakota and Wyoming. So in uh, Monday. Oh, no, that's that's a, a week later. So that's that's what we got coming up in the next few days. Those are your last chances if you live in any of those states. To or, register to vote if you need to register or change your registration information and so forth. Yes. Or if you know someone who does live in those states and you love them, help them vote. Uh, or even actually, if you hate them, help them <laughs> at this point uh, vote. I uh, joked only sort of about this becoming the Georgia cast on yesterday's uh, program since we've been covering so many electoral disasters and voter suppression scams by the state's Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who just also happens to be running for governor against African-American Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams, uh, with hundreds of thousands of disproportionately African-American voters recently removed from the voting rolls, more than 50,000 disproportionately African-American registrations being held in suspension for failing the state's exact match law. And as we reported yesterday with who, what, why's Jordan Wilkie, some 9% of absentee vote-by-mail ballots disproportionately from African-American voters being rejected now by county officials across the state, including one county, Gwinnett, which so far accounts for some 40% of rejected mail-in ballots. 
Uh, with all of that and the state's 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems used on both Election Day and early in-person voting, uh, we now have this today from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. On the first day of early voting in Georgia on Monday, election precincts in Fulton County, that would be Atlanta, encountered technology issues that created long lines for voters. A spokesperson for the county, April Majors, said the issue was with the machine used by poll workers to verify voter registration. That sounds like it would be the electronic poll books or e-poll books that we have warned about for so long on the show that require electricity and require the Internet and must not fail or people cannot vote at least unless paper poll book ba uh, uh, backups are available and potentially paper ballots. Because the machine was not working, poll workers had to verify voters' information manually, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So presumably that means they did have paper poll books available, I guess, or uh, with the e-poll book system not working, maybe they had to look up each voter on a computer to verify them as eligible one at a time. I'm not sure. It's unclear from the AJC story at this hour. And I'm getting different source uh, stories from uh, various uh, sources on the ground in Georgia. In any event, that manual verification, according to the report, took much longer, much more time than the machines would have at least according to the AJC, uh, which is not fantastic on these issues, I should note. In an email statement uh, around 12.40 in the afternoon on Monday, again, the first day of early voting in Georgia, the uh, county's Department of Registration and Elections said that Fulton County's early voting polling locations at libraries are experiencing network technical issues. Unfortunately, they are unable to quickly verify voter registrations. Uh, about an hour or so later, the county uh, followed up saying they thought that all the locations were uh, back to normal. But the uh, problem was initially affecting the entire county. Uh, people were in lines um, for 20 minutes that did not budge at all, according to some voters. Um a poll worker had told one of them that they were having problems with the Internet, whatever that means. Uh, Jerry Hudspeth, a voter from Johns Creek, said that most people left at that point. He came back to vote later, um, and he said the line then seemed to be moving, but uh, he said that Fulton County has had months to prepare for this and told everybody to vote early. It was very disappointing, he said. Uh, similar stories elsewhere around... Uh, around Fulton County, around Atlanta. Uh, one woman said she was about the 20th person in line, and there were many people behind her at 8.30 a.m. Hopefully, this will get worked out. Oh, my goodness. Hopefully. Can you imagine this on Election Day? Uh, imagine it. I've lived through it. Are you kidding? I know, and it's going to be even worse. fully prepared to live through it again, I'm so uh, sorry to say. Uh, the AJC also reports that uh, poll workers came out and began asking voters to fill out paper absentee ballots. That's also somewhat unclear to me uh, if they meant provisional ballots uh, or because it was early absentee voting, if they were then allowed to vote on paper absentee ballots at the polling place. 
which would be nice. Uh, <clears throat> in any event, that was day one in Georgia. So, uh, yeah, the problems continue in the Peach State when it comes to, you know, voting. Uh, speaking of elections, uh, very quickly here, conservative mega donors Sheldon and Miriam Adelson funneled nearly $35 million into Republican coffers in recent months, according to Politico, making them a primary source of strength for the GOP as it fights to maintain control of both the U.S. House and Senate. As we are just weeks away from the midterms, 35 million. One guy alone. Well, one guy and his wife, I guess. And that's just recently. $35 million. The Adelsons have also spent more than $90 million on various GOP causes so far this cycle alone, according to the Federal Election Commission filings, with their third quarter giving uh, cementing their status as the GOP's biggest donors. Uh, the biggest single donors anyway, uh, not obscene at all. Totally what the founders had in mind. Am I right? U.S. Supreme Court, $90 million from one guy and his wife. They each gave $10 million to the Congressional Leadership Fund. That's a super PAC run by House Speaker Paul Ryan. Uh, it was the couple's second major infusion of cash to try to help save the Republican House majority, and it accounted for nearly 80% of the fund's haul last quarter. One guy and his wife, 80% of the money being used by Paul Ryan's U.S. House political uh, uh, committee uh, that's called the Congressional Leadership Fund. All came from one guy. And that was on top of $55 million that the pair had already given to the Congressional Leadership Fund and to another super PAC uh, focused on helping Republicans keep control of the U.S. Senate. All because there are still a, a, a few laws in place. This means that they gave all of this money to these uh, to these PACs, but they also gave some smaller amounts to individual GOP candidates. Again, because there are just a few laws in place to limit the amount that they are allowed to give directly to the candidates. But really, those uh, are those laws long for this world at this point? The Adelsons also gave a combined $10 million to the America First Action Pack to support Trump's agenda contributing the lion's share of the $12 million that the group brought in during the third quarter. So 10 of $12 million. Sheldon Adelson is running this country at this point. He is buying all of the or Republican politicians. Yeah. Uh, in recent weeks, that PAC has funded negative TV ads targeting, among others, Democratic Senator John Tester of Montana, who is in a, a tough re-election fight up there. And all of that is somehow totally legal, according to both the U.S. Supreme Court and state Supreme Courts. And yet Republicans are still unhappy with some of those state Supreme Courts, at least. And yes, they are attempting to rig and steal those courts as well, just as they did the U.S. Supreme Court. Mark Joseph Stern joins us next on two attempted state Supreme Court coups. And I think that is the right word for it um, in two different states. And uh, by the way, the U.S. Supreme Court's move last week to help steal the U.S. Senate. See how this works. 
Mark joins us next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, it's not only the U.S. Supreme Court that Republicans have either rigged or stolen. Nope, they're trying to do the uh, same thing at a number of state Supreme Courts. And uh, in at least one case for the moment, it appears they may have been stopped for now. And maybe in one of the other cases as well. Maybe. Can't tell. I will let my guest explain this insanity, and it really is insanity. Mark Joseph Stern is our go-to U.S. Supreme Court correspondent, covering the court, the law, and much more for Slate.com. And while his focus is usually on the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal bench, with the nation's high court now stolen by Republicans for a generation or two, unless Democrats can get their act together and steal it back, so to speak, by packing it and restoring their rightful majority in the years ahead. Uh, in lieu of that, Mark has been focusing of late on attempts, successful and otherwise by the GOP, to rig the high courts in both West Virginia and Florida, both of these stories, one of which has resulted in a bona fide constitutional crisis, I think, at this point. Both of them are kind of nuts, to say the least. But what isn't nuts these days? Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, amigo. Thanks so much for having me back on. All right. Well, let's see. Uh, very quickly here. Last uh, we spoke, you and I, I believe the Republicans were hoping to get some guy named Brett Kavanaugh placed on the U.S. Supreme Court. Despite the uh, fact that uh, he is, well, we all know that story. Uh, how'd that ever turn out, by the way? Well, uh, you know, I saw Justice Brett Kavanaugh on the bench uh, on his yeah. very first day a mm -hmm. couple weeks back, and he looks right at home in his robes. He sits next to Justice Elena Kagan, and they were chattering away, laughing and giggling like old friends. So the court has accepted him with open arms. Uh, presumably a tactical decision by the liberal justices to nab his vote whenever they can, if ever they can, uh, and we're just going to have to live with him for the foreseeable future. Fantastic news. All right, with that great news out of the way, uh, actually I do have some U.S. Supreme Court uh, questions for you specifically regarding this seemingly inexplicable decision to allow what appears to be a blatant attempt at voter suppression in North Dakota. Uh, and that decision came before Kavanaugh was seated on the court, making it even more puzzling. We'll get to that in a second. That would normally be the craziest story we have to cover. But first, uh, let's start with some of the uh, GOP state Supreme Court madness, where incredibly enough, I think, Mark, we have a bit of good news and uh, of in all places in Florida. So uh, let me just set this up very quickly. Last month, Bradblog.com's Legal analyst Ernie Canning wrote about this rather remarkable story in Florida where outgoing Republican Governor Rick Scott, who is now running for governor, 
I'm sorry, for Senate against uh, incumbent Democratic Senator Bill Nelson. Uh, Rick Scott announced that he planned to appoint three new state Supreme Court justices whose terms were coming to an end. All of them were appointed by Democratic governors. But this appointment was going to be after he would be out of office somehow. And yet this story today, I think, has a happy ending, at least for the moment. Uh, But first, uh, Mark, how was Scott planning to pull off this coup? So this is a really extraordinary story. Uh, About two years ago, he announced that he would uh, appoint three new justices to the seven-member Florida Supreme Court, effectively mm-hmm. swinging it far to the right for a generation, uh, on his last morning in office. Uh, and everyone wondered what in the world he meant, and it became clear when he started uh, setting this up last month uh, that the new incoming governor, by tradition in Florida, uh, takes the oath of office at noon on the day that he is sworn in, mm-hmm. right? Uh, And so Rick Scott intended to appoint these three justices literally hours before the new governor was sworn in, uh, declaring that his constitutional authority was extended until the moment the new governor took the oath. And because this governor would not take the oath until noon, he presumed he would be able to fill these seats. Uh, now, luckily for us, there's a fantastic group, the League of Women Voters yeah. uh, and Common Cause, filed suits to try to block this, uh, arguing that Scott's attempt to pack the court would be totally unconstitutional under the Florida Constitution. Uh, and yesterday, I am very relieved to say uh, their argument won out, and the court issued an order uh, with no noted dissents. Uh, declaring that the next governor will be the one to appoint these three justices, not Rick Scott. So if I understand this, his term, uh, he's claiming his term doesn't end until the other governor is sworn in. Uh, but the uh, these three Supreme Court justices, their term would have ended at midnight on the day prior, giving Scott what he thought would be 12 hours to pack the court with three new right-wing justices to take the place of the three old and uh, termed out uh, Democratic justices. Yes, that is exactly correct. Uh, And what the Florida Supreme Court did to basically head off this constitutional crisis, Mm -hmm. because we were approaching a situation where you could could feasibly have two different men claiming to be governor at the same time, (laughs) appointing different justices to these spots, right? Right. Uh, What the court said was the new governor uh, is able to take office at the stroke of midnight. Uh, at the same time that these terms will expire. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the court essentially directed the new governor to not dilly-dally to take the oath, to not wait until noon, and instead to take a midnight oath of office uh, to safeguard his constitutional authority to appoint the new justices and confirm that Rick Scott was no longer governor. (laughs) Kind of a remarkable move, Um, really kind of a tactical effort by the court to avoid wading any deeper into what is fundamentally a political dispute, I think. Uh, But one that definitely tracks with the state constitution and also one that tracks with tradition. Uh, Because this issue of this 12-hour gap 
right. between a, a governor's term expiring under the Constitution and a new governor being sworn in has actually come up several times in the past, and several past Florida governors have taken that midnight oath to avoid allowing their, uh, you know, their, their mm-hmm. um, previous governors, the outgoing governor, right. uh, an opportunity to engage in some chicanery and appoint different judges. So, uh, uh, so this is basically restoring an, an old status quo from the grimier days of Florida <laughs> politics. Oh, uh, and it, of course, raises the stakes for the election um, by uh, ensuring that whoever wins this gubernatorial race in Florida will be able to tilt the Supreme Court on his first day in office. So as long as the, the new governor, and it could be a Republican, could be a Democrat, it could be Republican Ron DeSantos, uh, he is running against a Democratic progressive Andrew Gillum, uh, whoever the governor is, as long as he swears, it gets sworn in essentially one second after midnight, I guess, uh, he would be then allowed to make these, uh, these, these appointments of these three new seats. Now there is uh, a few caveats here, one regarding the timing that we talked about, but also, uh, as I understand it from your reporting over at Slate.com, the governor, whoever it is, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, he must choose from a list of candidates that has been selected by Florida's Judicial Nominating Commission, the JNC, uh, and Scott has already directed the JNC to give him a a list of candidates. Is that correct? Yes, uh, that is correct. And that is a wrinkle here that will basically prevent Gillum, if he wins, from appointing any liberal lions. So in Florida, the governor doesn't have free choice to appoint uh, judges or justices. He or she has to select from this list uh, that is sent up to him or her by the JNC. And Rick Scott has used his supermajority in the legislature to turn the JNC into a very partisan body. It used to be totally nonpartisan and run by the Florida Bar, which is actually why we have such a great Supreme Court right now in Florida, mm. uh, which is my home state. Uh, <laughs> but Rick Scott packed it with allies, with partisan allies, uh, and created a sort of five to four partisan split on the board. Uh, now, there is a complicated voting procedure that the JNC uses uh, to send up a bunch of names to the governor from three to six that ensures there are at least a range of moderates to conservatives to centrist leaning liberals. Uh, there are not going to be exclusively reactionaries on this list. Uh, but it is probably going to be a much less progressive list than Andrew Gillum would want if he does win and gets to select uh, the, these justices. And there's a chance he will try to fight in court to get a more liberal list, uh, but he probably won't have any success. But it won't at least wouldn't be uh, three hard right wingers that it would be if uh, either Rick Scott uh, was able to make these uh, selections or if Ron DeSantos ends up winning. And uh, for the record, Gillum has been leading by several points in recent polling. Uh, Real Clear Politics is calling the race a toss-up right now, uh, though they're giving an average 3.7-point uh, lead uh, for, to Gillum over DeSantos. But hey, this is Florida, so yet another good reason for Sunshine Staters to fight like hell to vote this year and to try to have their votes counted as cast, if at all possible. Never an easy feat in Florida. Okay, 
So that's kind of crazy enough, but this story in West Virginia, I think uh, it just <laughs> blows everything else away. Let's let's move to this attempted Republican theft of the Supreme Court in the state of West Virginia and the constitutional crisis, which I think is now upon us. Um, it's, it's absolutely insane. Uh, we, we discussed this uh, story a bit, Mark, last time you were on the show. Uh, slightly earlier in this process. Let me see if I can quickly summarize the story up to that point, and then I will let you correct my mistakes and otherwise pick it up when it gets even more insane thereafter. So in August, the majority Republican West Virginia State Assembly impeached all five members of the state Supreme Court, which had been a Democratic majority, three to two, as I recall, but it's West Virginia, so even Democrats are pretty Republican-y there. Uh, they uh, they claimed the uh, the assembly that the uh, justices had abused their authority by making expensive renovations to their offices, overpaying some senior circuit court judges, uh, using some funds impermissibly for trips and so forth. One of the justices, a Democrat who was found guilty of criminal fraud, I believe he resigned. And then the other four were then impeached, facing trials in the state Senate. After which, if they were removed by a two-thirds vote of the state Senate, they would be replaced by the appointment of a very Trumpy Republican governor who happens to be named Jim Justice. One more, a Republican, I think, resigned rather than face impeachment, leaving two Democrats and one Republican to face Senate impeachment trials. Am I correctish so far on that, Mark? Yes, that is all about correct. We are now facing these impeachment trials. Uh, I will say that the individual who resigned uh, has still been impeached theoretically, but no one knows if that actually works or if she has avoided impeachment because she resigned. Uh, and one justice has been acquitted. She was very much a conservative. Uh, and so now we're looking at uh, the potential uh, trials for uh, Chief Justice Margaret Workman, who is a Democrat, mm -hmm. as well as Justice Alan Lowry, who is a Republican, who was recently convicted by a federal jury on multiple charges of fraud. And yeah, so as crazy as the entire story is up until now, it gets crazier because, as I understand it, we then uh, get to these two other justices. As you said, one was acquitted in the Senate. So um, it gets crazy confusing here. Two other justices, I think uh, both Democrats. Am I right about that? That, that would still stand trial here? Uh, one Democrat, one Republican. Okay. The Democratic Chief Justice Margaret Workman and the Republican Justice Alan Lowry, who was just convicted. Okay. And so now Margaret Workman, the Chief Justice, she is suing, as I understand, uh, and uh, she sued to stop the impeachment, which meant, which means her case went to the state Supreme Court. Yes, so she sued to stop the trial. She was already impeached uh -huh. by the House of Delegates. Right. Uh, there was a trial set in the state Senate. She sued to stop it, arguing that um, there were various procedural issues with the impeachment that violated her right to due process, and also that the charges uh, were rooted in this kind of misconception of the impeachment standard that violated separation of powers under the state constitution. Now, the problem with her filing this lawsuit uh, at the state Supreme Court is, of course, that she is the chief justice of the state Supreme Court, right. and that all of the other justices are either suspended without pay or disqualified because of the obvious conflict of interest. 
So she, Margaret Workman, under, under state law, had to select a retired judge who then appointed an acting chief justice who then appointed four acting associate justices who would constitute a makeshift bench to hear her case. So we got a court with five justices. None of them are the actual justices that would normally sit on the bench. None of them were appointed by either the governor or the, I guess in Virginia, they actually, they're supposed to be voting on the uh, Supreme Court justices. So five unelected justices sitting on Workman's case, deciding if she is allowed to stand trial in the, in the state Senate. That is right. Uh, Five justices selected by neither the governor, nor the assembly, nor the people. uh, Just a makeshift West Virginia Supreme Court. Uh, But I will say the court ruled unanimously uh, that indeed the legislature had violated separation of powers as well as workmen's rights. Uh, and I think that the decision really does stand on its own. I recognize that many will say this is fruit of the poisonous tree, that it's a kind of illegitimate decision. That is, in fact, what the state Senate said. It, it proceeded uh, or attempted to proceed with the trial mm-hmm. uh, until it realized that it would need a justice to conduct it and that none of the justices would be willing <laughs> to defy their own court. Uh, but the, the court said basically, look, what... Chief Justice Workman did here was spend uh, a fair amount of money, over $100,000, on chambers renovation Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, pay senior status judges, so judges who have retired but still hear occasional cases to relieve workload problems, Mm -hmm. uh, pay them in excess of what the legislature had allowed. And the issue here is that in West Virginia, and West Virginia alone, this is a very odd constitutional provision, but the state constitution guarantees the court total and final authority over its own budget and over its own personnel affairs. Uh, And so the legislature had impeached and attempted to remove uh, Chief Justice Workman for exercising an authority that she unambiguously had a right to exercise under the state constitution. And so the legislature was basically engaging in a partisan power grab. It was not exercising its impeachment authorities uh, as laid out under the constitution. And I think that conclusion really does sound about right, even though this is a a rather bizarrely constituted court. Uh, It seems to have landed in the right spot. So... So I guess the question is, what now? You had mentioned that the Senate was going to, despite this decision by this uh, makeshift Supreme Court, uh, that the Senate was going to hold the trial anyway, but it needs to be proceeded over by a justice, and none of the justices would do so? Was that none of the original justices or none of the makeshift justices would do so? So none of the real justices or the makeshift justices will do so, almost certainly, um, because to conduct a trial that the court has found illegal would be defying the court's own decision, right? Uh, now, one of the real justices, who is in fact not totally real because he wasn't elected, he was uh, appointed by the governor uh, after they had successfully pushed out a previous justice. Uh, but this guy was set to conduct this trial. Uh, he did disqualify himself 
himself from the hearing over Workman's claim, uh, but he has said that he will abide by the order of the court. And so unless the West Virginia Senate wants to go totally rogue and conduct basically uh, an illegitimate trial, a kind of star court <laughs> that's overseen by no justice as required under state law, it's just going to have to comply with the court. So we're at a sort of impasse between the legislature and the judiciary. Uh, and no matter how it ends, it's just not going to end well um, because you have a, a, a state government more or less destroying its under the guise of an impeachment crisis that really all emerges from a partisan assault on the court. Because there, there was some legitimacy uh, to the concerns that were put forward by the, by the impeachment process about what the justices had done. Uh, but really, I mean, did any of it merit impeachment? Really? So here, here's what I think. Uh, you know, the illegal actions by several of the justices definitely did merit impeachment and resignation. So uh, Justice Ketchum, who had illegally used a state credit card for his personal enjoyment, he's the one who was indicted uh, in, in July and resigned, mm -hmm. uh, and, and he certainly could have been impeached. Uh, Justice Lowry, who is the Republican who was just convicted by a federal court uh, on multiple counts of fraud and false statements to the authority, uh, to the authorities, he deserves to be impeached, obviously. The other justices really did not do anything illegal. Uh, they did things that the legislature doesn't like, right? The legislature doesn't like that the court has control over its own budget. The legislature wants to starve the judiciary of the necessary funds to keep it running. Uh, that's just what Republican legislatures tend to do when they have a judiciary that tilts slightly to the left. Uh, but the court has constitutional power, as I said, to follow its own rules. Yes, the justices probably should have been a little bit more budget-minded. They probably didn't need to spend $100,000 renovating their chambers. But that was their right under the state constitution. Uh, and if the legislature wants to redefine uh, excessive spending as an impeachable offense when the spending itself was legal, that seems like a real stretch and not an area we want to move into. And there was one other justice, uh, is, is the, the remaining justice who has yet to face trial and who I don't think did, did the other justice sue or is the ju other justice still potentially facing trial in the Senate? Uh, so one justice, uh, Robin Davis, she is the one who stepped down mm. rather than be impeached, even though the legislature still somehow wants to impeach her. And uh, she is actually suing on a different theory. She is suing in federal court, uh, alleging that the uh, state legislature targeted the women justices and was acting on the basis of sex discrimination. Probably a far, uh, far-fetched theory, uh, but you can understand her desire to fight back in some way. So w what are we left with? I mean, th the fact that the uh, state assembly purposely waited until after the August deadline uh, to vote for these impeachments, uh, because they could have, uh, had they done it before the, I guess, mid-August or so, uh, then these justices could have been replaced um, by the electorate in November. But they waited until afterwards, so Governor Justice would be able to appoint all five of these members uh, to replace them. So we know this was done in bad faith, but uh, I mean, what what are we left with? Is this a constitutional crisis or does the Senate roll over and say, OK, we'll we'll just go with, I think, uh, three remaining justices and appoint the other two? Is my math correct there? <laughs> uh, 
yes, uh, <laughs> your math is correct, and I think this is still a simmering constitutional crisis. We are at a standstill right now because the Senate really wants to conduct this trial, uh, but only one of the current justices. Uh, the real justices, has been acquitted. Then there are the two replacement justices, and then there's this sort of stable of acting justices who pop in and out as they are needed. So it's a real mess. I, I don't really see how it gets resolved anytime soon, <laughs> I I'm sad to say. Uh, one party is going to have to stand down, but these justices are not going to resign. They just refuse to do so, wow. and in some cases, rightly so. Margaret Workman didn't mm -hmm. break the law. She doesn't deserve to be impeached. Um, so it's a standoff. Wow. And, uh, you know, I would not place money on which side will prevail. In the opinion on Thursday, uh, the West Virginia Supreme Court uh, wrote, and you quoted this in your article at Slate, the greatest fear we should have in this country today is ourselves. If we do not stop the infighting, work together and follow the rules, if we do not use social media for good rather than use it to destroy, then in the process... We will destroy ourselves. Boy, are we on our way there, Mark. Last uh, issue I want to talk to you about, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll get back to that one for a moment here. Uh, you write uh, that the, uh, the court last Tuesday refused to block a key provision of North Dakota's voter ID requirement, assure, ensuring that the law will be in effect during the 2018 midterm election. Uh, as Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed out in her dissent, this decision is bad news for thousands of voters who may now be unable to cast a ballot in November and terrible news for Democratic Senator Heidi Heidkamp, uh, who is defending her seat against uh, Republican Kevin Kramer. Uh, he is currently ahead in the polls. Heidkamp won by just over 3,000 votes back in 2012. So this new requirement, which would require an ID when voting uh, that has a street address on it and many Native American tribal IDs, many Native Americans who voted for Heidkamp big time in 2012, do not have a street address on their IDs. They would not be able to vote well, they will not be able to vote if they unless they can figure something out how to get an ID with an address. But, uh, Mark, this new law, this was on hold during the primary just months ago, back in April, I think. Now the Supreme Court is allowing it to take effect just before the general election. What happened to the so-called Purcell principle, which the Supreme Court used to invoke to keep changes from taking place just before elections in order to avoid chaos, even in cases uh, where such a change might prevent tens of thousands of voters from being disenfranchised. They're tossing out the Purcell principle entirely now? Oh, bless you, Brad. Thank you for asking this question, uh, because I really do think this case is the illustration of how the Purcell principle is a one-way street. Uh, for, for years, probably decades, the court has invoked the Purcell principle um, to freeze lower court decisions um, that favor voting rights. Mm -hmm. Lower court decisions that uh, block discriminatory voter ID laws. Mm -hmm. Lower court decisions that maintain early voting, that expand the franchise in some way. And the Supreme Court has said, no, no, no. Under the Purcell principle, we can't have legal changes shortly before an election because that will confuse the electorate. Here, of course, 
we have a legal change uh, in which the lower court uh, has, you know, mm-hmm. uh, basically expanded the franchise. Once again, you have the Supreme Court saying, no, we can't have an expansion of the franchise shortly before an election. Uh, this will be so confusing to people, which is nonsense, because it only means that more people can vote rather than fewer people. Uh, and then if you look at these other decisions that the Supreme Court will uphold under the Purcell principle, a decision upholding a new discriminatory voter ID law, a decision upholding shuttering of early voting, uh, you know, shuttering of more uh, polling places in uh, minority precincts, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court will say, yes, 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 the Purcell principle requires us to uphold all of that because we can't have changes. So this principle doesn't make any sense. That, that's the important thing here to remember. Whenever the courts invoke the Purcell principle, they are doing it to limit the franchise. It's no longer a principle. It's just an anti-voting rule. It means that if there is a decision that favors voting rights before mm-hmm. an election, it has to be stopped. But if there is a decision that disfavors voting rights for an election, uh, it has to be upheld. Well, at least uh, even if the Purcell principle is terrible, at least if it's consistently applied, it's consistently applied and they can make that claim. But here it's obviously a last minute change. Voters went to vote in the primaries. They did not have to have a street address on their on their tribal IDs in uh, in these cases. Uh, Many Native Americans use P.O. boxes because they live out on the reservations. Their houses often don't even have street addresses. Uh, so this is just seems to be absolutely blatant hypocrisy. And I would love to blame it on Brett Kavanaugh. But apparently he wasn't even he didn't even partake in this decision. This was before, I guess, he was he was seated. So my main question here, you had a, an eight person court at that time, uh, theoretically a four to four split. Justices Ginsburg and Kagan dissented, but why didn't Sotomayor and Breyer join that dissent? I don't understand. So I am very confident that if Sotomayor and Breyer had a fifth vote, say a Justice Merrick Garland, who favored uh, expansion of the franchise, that they would have cast their ballots or, or cast their votes mm-hmm. uh, in favor of, um, you know, uh, helping North Dakotans vote, Mm -hmm. keeping this rule on hold, ensuring that tribal members could still cast a ballot. Uh, But the problem is that the lower court decision from the Eighth Circuit, which Trump has already stacked with very, very conservative nominees, Mm -hmm. uh, it ruled against the tribal members, and it ruled in favor of the state, in favor of cracking down on the franchise. So if the court had split four to four, uh, then nothing good would have happened anyway. This decision would have been upheld, and the, the bad rule would be in place. So I think that Justices Breyer and, and, and Sotomayor were probably acting out of prudence, out of institutional concern, out of recognition that four-to-four splits look bad. The court has a kind of informal rule that it has to avoid uh, four-to-four splits at all costs whenever possible. Uh, And so I think that's what happened here. They were playing nice. Uh, I certainly hope they stop playing nice now that Kavanaugh's on the Yeah, I I hope so, too. I see absolutely no reason for them to play nice. If anything, I see, uh, you know, especially on an issue like this, 
this is the time to send a signal that, uh, you know, Houston, we have a problem here, even if that resulted in a four to four split. So uh, I hope that Sotomayor and Breyer are much smarter than I am uh, playing much better, you know, three dimensional chess than I can even comprehend. Because frankly, I don't know uh, how they let that one go. So I'm I'm going to go with you, Mark. You know the court better than I, and I will uh, not yet hate Sotomayor and Breyer for this. But boy, is this uh, a troubling development just weeks out from the uh, from the midterm elections, and uh, this election in North Dakota could make all the difference in who controls the U.S. Senate. Absolutely. I mean, the Supreme Court, for all we know, could have just thrown control of the Senate to Republicans for at least two more years. Yep. And with that good news, Mark Joseph Stern, I will let you go. Uh, He covers the law, the court system, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, apparently all the state Supreme Courts as well, and much more over at Slate.com. Things are getting insane, and I thought they were insane already. We will talk to you when they get insaner still, my friend. Mark Joseph Stern, follow him at Slate.com and on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Thank you, brother. Always a pleasure. Talk soon. All right. Okay, this is just getting crazier and crazier, just when you thought it couldn't get crazier. But we haven't even got to November 6th yet. And November 7th, which will be really crazy, I promise. But again, we'll hold that for another day. All right, quick break, and we are back with the Green News Report and Desi Doyen right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. After we laid down today's Green News report a bit earlier today, uh, and just so after we uh, recorded GNR and just before airtime today, the state of Florida bumped up their official death toll to 16 from Hurricane Michael, uh, bumping up the current death toll in uh, four states from what had been 18, as uh, we recorded uh, earlier today on the GNR, up to 20, either 28 or 26. It's confusing. Washington Post says 28. AP is saying 26 at this hour. Uh, in any event, uh, that number is uh, not a happy one, and sadly, it could still rise as there are a number of unaccounted for folks still in parts of Florida at yes. this hour. It's unfortunate and sad. So with that in mind, here is our latest Green News report. Five days after the storm slammed into the Florida panhandle, patience is running thin. Large swaths of the Florida panhandle still awaiting aid after catastrophic Hurricane Michael. 
Michael was the fourth record-breaking hurricane to make U.S. landfall in the past 15 months. Plus... I'm not denying climate change. Despite Michael's record-breaking destruction, Republicans are still denying the science and the economic impacts of climate change. All of that destruction and denial straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. A U.N. report warning about catastrophic damage from climate change drops just as such a hurricane hits. Only a moron could not see the connection. Or as Trump said, I don't see the connection. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, if I'm not mistaken, your teaser there at the top about Michael as the fourth hurricane hit the U.S. over the past 15 months, that doesn't include Hurricane Lane out in Hawaii, though, does it? No, but Hurricane Lane only skirted Hawaii. It didn't actually make landfall. So it left a record amount of rainfall in Hawaii, but it doesn't count because it wasn't a hurricane when it hit the island. Basically, yes. I see. Well, on Monday, President Donald Trump toured some of the destruction left behind by Hurricane Michael across several southern states. The Category 4 storm obliterated entire neighborhoods. As of airtime, at least 18 people are confirmed dead across four states, but that number is likely to rise as rescue crews search for at least 30 people still listed as unaccounted for. Nearly one week after the storm, emergency services have still not reached some storm victims, with food and water being airdropped into rural areas that were cut off. More than 200,000 people are still without power amid stifling heat and humidity, with some officials warning that electricity in some areas might not be restored for a month or more. What is this, Puerto Rico? Officials in Mexico Beach warned that recovery could take a year. Yes, it's Puerto Rico. For the record, Hurricane Michael was the most powerful hurricane ever to hit the Florida panhandle. It was the strongest storm to make landfall in the continental U.S. since Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Hurricane Michael now ranks among the top four most powerful hurricanes on record to make landfall in the United States. Michael was the strongest hurricane to hit Georgia since record-keeping began in the 1850s. Michael was so strong that the rumbling of its winds and waves showed up on undersea seismometers Mm. that measure earthquakes. Wow. Michael was the fourth Category 4 hurricane to hit the United States in just the last 15 months, following last year's Harvey, Irma, and Maria. And then, of course, there was this year's Lane and Florence, but apparently they don't rate. Not as major hurricanes at landfall. So major is considered to be Category 3 or above? Correct. Got it. Scientists say that Hurricane Michael's sudden intensification from Category 1 to almost Category 5 in less than 24 hours fits a recent pattern. All of the the worst hurricanes of the past two years, Harvey, Irma, Maria, Florence, and Michael, intensified extremely rapidly. Initial estimates of economic losses put damages from Hurricane Michael at about $30 billion. In Georgia, where farmers were just about to harvest their crops, agricultural damage is forecast to top more than $1.5 billion alone. In 2018, so far, the United States has had 12 extreme weather disasters costing more than a billion dollars in damages. 
All of Hurricane Michael's extreme records are in line with climate scientists' predictions of what we'd expect to see with global warming. But Republicans like President Donald Trump and Florida's own Republican Senator Marco Rubio took to the airwaves to downplay the fact that climate change is man-made and is having major economic impact right now. In a CNN interview on Sunday, Senator Rubio acknowledged that rising sea levels are impacting infrastructure and climate change might be a factor but he promoted the false claim that transitioning away from fossil fuels to clean energy would somehow be more expensive than the mounting economic losses from multiple billion-dollar extreme weather disasters that we are seeing every single year. And that means mitigation, hardening. We've been working on that very hard and continue to uh, strategies to mitigate against those factors that are going to be in place no matter what happens with our energy policy. But I'm also not going to destroy our economy. For the record, numerous economic studies and the real life experience of booming economies like California have proven that the cost of transitioning to clean energy is far, far cheaper than the damage caused by fossil fuel emissions with global warming, including the lives saved from cutting air and water pollution from fossil fuels. Climate change is already having an enormous economic impact right now. Yeah, but that's nothing compared to the economic impact on Marco Rubio's campaign if the Koch brothers pull out their money if he stops denying climate change. Good point. For much more on all of these stories, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Follow where the money goes. Follow where the money goes. Follow where the money goes. Yep. I know the money ain't coming from the uh, Koch brothers to us or <laughs> no. from Sheldon Adelson to us. No, but Sheldon Adelson and the Koch brothers are certainly giving a lot of money to Republicans this election cycle. I think they might want something in exchange for that. You, no, no, no. It's just because they... They like them. They care about democracy. They care about... Uh, I, yeah, it's they want something from them. That's it. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Yeah. And they're getting it. Uh, all right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them anytime for free at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I hope you will find and follow and share our work here. Uh, you can find me there at the Brad Blog, and as ever, until the Adelsons or the Cokes show up to help, I'm going to have to rely on you, people, uh, listeners. Uh, please help support our work here by stopping by bradblog.com/donate. You're the only ones who keep us on your public airwaves, so thank you for stopping by bradblog.com/donate. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Follow, 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 follow.